0: The Jerusalem Channel is made possible by viewer support. Thanks for watching. I'm grateful to be challenged when it comes to questions of faith. I'm constantly receiving emails, letters, and responses on social media. There are lots of thoughtful issues that viewers want to raise, and that keeps me always going back to Scripture as the source of wisdom and understanding. So today, I've compiled the top 10 most frequently asked questions to our ministry, and I hope the answers will give you some practical biblical truths to live by. Hello I'm Christine Darick and welcome to the program where we discuss accomplishing exploits for the Lord in these last days. That's what Daniel 11 and 32 reminds us that those who know God will be strong and carry out exploits. And in order to do the works of the Lord we must have a biblical understanding of important issues. So let's begin with the number one question sent to our ministry. The issue I'm most asked about concerns the Sabbath, the Shabbat in Hebrew. Does God require us to keep a particular Sabbath day? And a second frequently asked question concerns keeping kosher food laws. Because of the growing Hebrew roots movement and end-time prophecies being fulfilled in the modern state of Israel, many Christians are deeply interested in our Hebraic roots. Many believers are receiving a lot of insights and instructions from various messianic leaders and Orthodox rabbis. And as rich as much of this teaching can be, nevertheless, many believers have become confused as to what day of the week we should observe as a day of rest. Should we observe the seventh day, the Jewish Sabbath, Saturday, or the first day of the week, sometimes called the eighth day, Sunday? also called, of course, the Lord's Day because Jesus was resurrected on Sunday. Many followers of Jesus become annoyingly legalistic, not only about the Sabbath, but also concerning how to pronounce the name of God and how to pronounce and to spell even the name of Jesus in Hebrew, Yeshua or Yehoshua. There are also confusions about whether or not we should keep Jewish kosher prohibitions against pork, for example. The Apostle Paul was a Pharisee, a Hebrew of Hebrews, yet he had a word of wisdom for all time and for anyone who becomes too rigid concerning matters that are not essential to salvation. Please write down this verse, Colossians 2.16. In that verse, Paul gave us a very clear edict. And I can't emphasize enough how important is this verse to anyone who's confused or who's being dictated to concerning Sabbath-keeping and dietary laws. Because Paul said, Let no one judge you in matters of food and drink or with respect to a festival, a new moon, or Sabbath days. Isn't that wonderfully clear? Concerning food, kosher or non-kosher, or drink, wine, or non-alcoholic beverages, or Sabbath-keeping, Paul said, let nobody judge and dictate your choice in these matters. Well, because of our experiences of living in the Jewish state, we couldn't help but fall into the rhythm of celebrating the Sabbath beginning on Friday evening, which of course is when a Jewish day begins at sundown. My husband and I enjoy the relaxation that begins with an evening meal on Sabbath Eve, Friday night, and we enjoy unwinding and relaxing during the day on Shabbat, Saturday. But we also don't have a problem with worshiping the Lord on Sunday, the day of the Lord's resurrection. We enjoy both days. Besides, Sunday is never a day of rest for a preacher. We enjoy the best of both worlds. Did you know that according to the prophecy of Isaiah 66, in verse 23, during the millennium, from one Sabbath to another, not from Sunday to Sunday, but from Sabbath to Sabbath, all mankind will come, the Lord says, and bow down before me. Well, on matters concerning the law of Moses, it's important to acknowledge that in this dispensation, Messiah fulfilled the law through his death and resurrection. Just as we no longer have to offer up animal sacrifices because Messiah has become our sacrifice, acceptable to God, so we no longer have to keep the literal Sabbath. You see, Messiah has become our Sabbath rest. According to Hebrews chapter four in the New Testament, we fulfill the Sabbath now by ceasing from our dead works and entering into the salvation rest that's provided through the finished work of Messiah. The New Covenant warns believers against trusting in the law for salvation, for trusting in the law would be a denial of what Messiah, Jesus, has accomplished for us. Well, Constantine made Sunday an official public holiday, But only later in the medieval church was Sunday erroneously substituted for the fourth commandment. Just know this, believers are no longer under the Sabbath law, although we are free to practice it should we so choose because we all need rest. But, and this is vitally important, we are not free to condemn other believers who do not observe it. A third question that I'm often asked is should Christians celebrate the Jewish festivals? Those are the appointed seasons as outlined in the Torah in Leviticus chapter 23. These appointed seasons include the four spring festivals Passover, Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, and the Feast of Weeks which Christians call Pentecost and also the three fall festivals namely the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Besides these seven biblically mandated festivals for the Jewish people, many Christians also enjoy celebrating in the wintertime the Jewish Feast of Dedication, or the Festival of Lights, called Hanukkah, and also later the holiday called Purim, which commemorates the saving of the Jewish people from destruction during the Persian Empire in the time of Queen Esther. Born-again believers are not commanded by God to observe all seven Levitical festivals, as I said, nor are we mandated by God to observe Hanukkah in Purim. Nevertheless, studying, appreciating, and celebrating these holidays is not prohibited to Christians. They, they are all part of our liberty to celebrate in Messiah if we choose. In fact. By celebrating these seasons, we can learn many insights about the plans and purposes of God. We learn, for example, that Yeshua, Jesus, has fulfilled the four spring festivals to the letter and that he will shortly fulfill the three fall festivals. Well, it's highly edifying to study all the Jewish holidays, and although in this dispensation Christians aren't commanded to keep these appointed festivals, because Messiah is our Passover lamb and he has been sacrificed for us. Nevertheless, during the millennium the Feast of Tabernacles will be celebrated by all the nations on earth. That's what Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 16 prophesies. So each year thousands of Christians are beginning to come up to Jerusalem already to participate now and to anticipate the Feast of Tabernacles. We're part of a prophetic vanguard that's holding what I call a dress rehearsal to worship King Messiah in the city of the great King. Therefore, my answer is, studying and celebrating the Jewish holidays is an unstoppable move of the Holy Spirit. So don't fight it, just enjoy it. Now, question four. What about the pagan commercial holiday of Christmas? As many believers view it as being commercial and pagan. Nothing makes a Hebrew roots legalist more angry than a Christian who enjoys celebrating Christmas. Well, scholars have proven through the scriptures, and I don't have time in this program to go into it, although I've done so in previous programs, Jesus wasn't born on December the 25th. It's far more likely, scholars say, that he was born during the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall, and that the light of the world was actually conceived around the time of December 25th during the Festival of Lights, Hanukkah. Jesus was born perhaps even in a Sukkah, which is a Hebrew word for stable, during the Feast of Sukkahs or Sukkot. Known, of course, in English as the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Gospel of John gives us a clue in chapter 1 in verse 14, where he says, And the Word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Because of the influence of the Hebrew Roots Movement and because of my sensitivities concerning Israel and the Jewish people, For a couple of years I also developed a negative attitude towards Christmas. And by the way, in our ministry each year we try to celebrate Messiah's birth when it really happened during the Feast of Tabernacles. Yes, I admit there are a lot of unbiblical, pagan ideas attached to Christmas celebrations, such as Yule Logs, Santa Claus, and Mistletoe, but these can be eliminated. And there's nothing wrong with celebrating the glorious nativity of Jesus to strengthen our knowledge of the doctrine of the incarnation. I don't have a big problem with setting a day aside as a way to remember and celebrate the birth of the Savior and to talk, for example, about the manifestation of the wise men which scholars believe took place at about January 6th, which just happens to be the Orthodox Christmas Eve. So at the end of the day, I don't have a big theological problem with celebrating Messiah's birth. We have freedom in Messiah to do that. I do like gift giving and I do like family time. That's just me. So using the Apostle Paul's edict, I will not let any man judge me concerning holidays and Sabbath keeping. If Jesus is the reason for the season, then I will celebrate Jesus any and every day of the year without any man judging me. Well, I realize this question about Christmas gets a lot of people mad. I had a Messianic Jewish friend who wrote me off because I celebrated Christmas with my family. But on the other hand, I have other Jewish friends who love Christmas and who enjoy celebrating it. For them, Christmas is a bridge. So go figure. Well, let's look at question number five. What about celebrating Easter? Well, Easter is a pagan word taken from the name of the spring fertility goddess. Easter eggs, Easter rabbits, Easter baskets, and Easter chicks are fertility symbols that don't have anything to do with the resurrection of Jesus. What a shame. We need to take the broom of the Holy Spirit to these. I don't say, for example, Happy Easter, I say Happy Resurrection Day, and many believers are doing this now. For many years our ministry has in fact been holding Passover conferences in Israel to correct these errors and to celebrate Messiah, our Passover, who has been sacrificed for us in sync with the Passover holiday when he really died and was resurrected. It was a sad day when the church decided to divorce itself from its Jewish foundations and when it decided to celebrate the resurrection at the time of the spring solstice instead of when it really happened during the Hebrew month of Nisan. The church must be accurate and celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord during the Passover and First Fruits festivals, which are types and pictures of truths that Yeshua, Jesus, accomplished for us in making atonement for Israel and for the world. Now, the next question, number six, is by far the most controversial and gets people very defensive because it touches their wallets. Whenever a pastor in a church or, dare say, someone on a TV channel starts talking about money, that can raise the blood pressure of a lot of folks. Should we tithe our income to God? Should we tithe on the net or gross income? And so forth. In my opinion, such questions always betray a lack of faith and trust in God. Tithing has to be taught, just like wisdom has to be taught. Both tithing and wisdom are not in our DNA because we're born with an evil inclination. And we're born with natural selfishness. My father, a blessed memory, taught me to tithe. And I'll never forget how shocked I was when as a little girl, he gave me a $1 bill, which made me happy because I thought of all the candy I could buy for a dollar. But then he said, Now you need to give back to God a tenth of that dollar. I was totally shocked. A dime? I had to give 10 cents of that dollar to God? But my father taught me that since God gives us everything, the least we can do is return to him a portion that will become a record before God, documenting that we believe he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. While well, many preachers teach Malachi three nine that says if we don't tithe, will be cursed with a curse. Well, I do believe that, but it's also pretty negative preaching. Jesus said, Give, and it shall be given unto you. And I like the way the offerings of Cornelius are beautifully described in the New Testament in Acts chapter 10 and verse 4. His giving is described as a memorial before God. In other words, the angels keep a record of our giving called a memorial. Some people teach that New Testament believers are under grace, and so we aren't required by the law to give 10%. But if we're not required to give 10% and we're under grace, what would prevent us from giving more, say 15 or 20% and so forth? Well, I'll never forget the words of my father. Honey, he said, you can't afford not to give if you want to be truly blessed. And in Malachi 3.10, God issued us a challenge. He said, test him in this matter to see if he will not open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing that we cannot even contain. Well, just this week, I got a great deal on some items that would normally have cost about three times more than I had paid for them. And the person kept giving me more stuff to the point that when the items were delivered, I had to beg them to take back Some of the surplus, I simply didn't have enough room even to store all the extra things that these people were wanting to give to me. Okay, (laughs) question number seven that people frequently ask is, when do I think the rapture and the second coming will happen? Well, the rapture and the second coming are actually two separate events on God's timetable. The Bible teaches that Jesus will return physically to Jerusalem At the end of the tribulation period, after having been summoned to return to this city by repentant Israel as a nation, when they say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. At the second coming, Jesus will not come as a thief in the night, but he will return to earth physically to rule as the Lion of the tribe of Judah, sitting upon the throne of his ancestral father David. But there are scriptures that also describe a rapture, a snatching away of the believers from the earth during a time when the Lord will suddenly descend into the atmosphere as a thief in the night to snatch the special precious jewels from the earth, his awaiting bride, the body of Messiah. The rapture is not a false doctrine, but it's a mystery that's Concealed in the Hebrew scriptures in types and shadows, such as Enoch and Elijah, who never died but who were snatched to heaven by God without dying. And it's a doctrine that's revealed in the new covenant by both the Lord Jesus and the Apostle Paul. Jesus said for us to pray that we will be canon worthy to escape all the things coming upon this earth. Are we living in the time of the rapture and the subsequent second coming? Yes, I believe we are. But these are questions that Christians have built whole websites around and that we discuss eagerly with good reasons because a true follower of Jesus will be eagerly watching and waiting for the Lord's return. True believers aren't so attached to this world that we'll be caught short when the Lord returns. An Orthodox Jewish friend remarked to me that he's amazed how Christians are so absorbed with the subject of only seven years known as the Great Tribulation and the period that will either precede or follow the event known as the Rapture. And then, of course, there are those who believe in a Rapture that occurs in the middle of the Tribulation period. I personally believe the overall tenor of Scripture teaches a pre-Tribulation Rapture. And that point of view is something that we've expanded in other programs available at our website. So on to question number eight. This involves something called Christian Zionism. In other words, I'm often asked, should Christians be supportive of the Jewish people and of the nation of Israel? You see, there's an era called replacement theology that's quite deadly. This erroneous viewpoint outrageously claims that God has rejected the Jews and has replaced His chosen people with the church. Replacement theology is a big irony in light of the fact that God has miraculously restored the Jewish state and brought back the Jewish people in these last days from the four corners of the earth. Surely the world should sit up and take notice of the fact that God is hardly finished with the Jews, since he's in the process of restoring them to their own land and to their ancient capital city, Jerusalem. Zionism, the return of the Jews, is not politically correct, but it is biblically correct. Therefore, a Christian Zionist is a believer who believes all of this Bible and who recognizes that God is presently restoring the Jewish people to the promised land just as he prophesied and promised. Recently, my husband and I were speaking in a church, and we were approached after the service by a man who said he had been attending that particular church for about three weeks, and he wasn't used to hearing that Zionism is a positive subject mentioned in the Bible. Up to that point, he had only heard the usual media hype and Muslim propaganda against Zionism, the type of anti-Semitism that's all too prevalent these days. As I've said many times, God certainly doesn't approve of all of the policies of the current secular state of Israel, but he does favor the return of the Jews to the promised land at this time. Therefore, it's incumbent upon every child of God to pray for the peace of Jerusalem and to pray for the protection and salvation of Israel. Here's question number nine in my top 10 of frequently asked questions. Isn't always God's will to heal somebody? You and I must develop the mentality that God favors healing, unless, of course, sin and rebellion blocks the flow of our healing. But healing is definitely part of the atonement that Jesus suffered and paid the price for us at the whipping post and on the cross. Isaiah 53 declares that by his stripes we are healed. So we must take hold of the healing aspect of the gospel and salvation. If you've got a sin in your life, if you will confess your sin, Jesus has already paid the price for both your sin and sickness. So meditate on and believe Matthew chapter 8 in the New Testament. And verses 16 to 17, which say that when the evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to Jesus, and he drove out the spirits with a word, and he healed all the sick. And this was to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah himself. He took our infirmities, and he bore our diseases. Amen. Lay hold of that. Now the last question, number 10 in the list today, that I have time to mention in this program, involves questions about salvation. Many write to me requesting prayer for the salvation of a loved one, for example. Often it's a request for an elderly parent or elderly spouse for whom they have no assurance that the person is saved, yet the person is tottering dangerously on the brink of eternity. While I'm happy to pray for these requests, nevertheless, I suggest that they try to lead their loved ones to the Lord through a simple bedtime prayer. Often it's best to ask someone to pray before going to bed at night because generally speaking, people are more compliant and calm before bedtime and more meditative. So privately, in the name of Jesus, bind any offense or stubbornness and remit their sins, according to the Great Commission in John chapter 20 and verse 23. And by remitting their sins, the person is prepared by the Holy Spirit and made more pliable. Then it will be a natural thing to say to your loved one, Dear one, as we go to sleep tonight, let's commit our souls to the Lord, because we never know if tonight our souls will be required of us. Will you pray with me? Then you can lead the loved one in a simple, uncomplicated prayer for the forgiveness of their sins and to commit their spirits, souls, and bodies to the Lord in the name of Jesus. Perhaps you yourself are not sure if your sins have been forgiven and where you will spend eternity. So I invite you now to take a moment to look up to heaven and to say to Father God, I confess and forsake all my sins. I do believe in my heart that you raised Jesus from the dead. And I do confess with my mouth that Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Amen. Good. I hope you prayed that. And if you want to chat about any further questions, please feel free to contact me through our website at exploits.tv. All our videos are available 24-7 at our website, plus news about Israel, the Middle East, healing, and Bible prophecy. And you can also request our Exploits magazine. So reminding you to pray for the peace of Jerusalem and contending for the faith, I'm Christine Darg. Shalom. What a marvelous gift God has given us through the Internet to share with you all over the world. I hope that you'll take time to visit our website with daily news updates, articles, and insights into the unpredictable world in which we live. And of course, our central focus is the nation of Israel and how God is fulfilling Bible prophecy in these turbulent days. We send out email alerts of all our new videos, and you can also read our Exploits Ministry magazine free online. All you need to do is let us have your email address. Better still, you can contact us by phone in the USA at our toll-free number, 1-888-245-2692. Our number in the UK is 0843-557-4077. And please keep in mind that all this is made possible by viewers like you, Who will stand with us? You can make a donation by credit or debit card at our website. Thanks for being a part of Exploits Ministry. You're living in the promise of Daniel 11.32. Those who know God will be strong and do exploits.